Hey guys, uh, today I've got a first for you. I've had scientists and philosophers and lawyers and all sorts of folks, but today is the debut of a film director on my show, Tony Ayers, Australian acclaimed film director. How are you, sir? Hi, guys. How are you? Uh, great, thank you. I wanted to sort of give a context to the beauty of the internet and how people can get to meet where otherwise they could have never met. I wanted to give the background of how I reached out to you. So about two weeks ago, I was sitting after a long, hard day uh, at working. My wife had fallen asleep. So I started looking around for something to watch. Here's this Australian movie, never heard of it, Cut Snake. Uh, I start watching it maybe five minutes in. I'm utterly hooked. I'm transfixed by it. Then this unbelievable song comes up from my childhood as a young boy in the disco era, uh, For the Love of Your Man. I said, oh my goodness, this is an unbelievable movie. So then I watched the movie. And after I watched it, I said, you know, I've got to find out, you know, the background to this movie, who made this movie and so on. So I went on YouTube saw an interview with you discussing how you cast the, the various characters. And I said, I've got to reach out to this guy. This guy's got some emotional de depth. We need to chat. So that's the background to how we met. And thank you so much from taking an invitation from an otherwise random stranger from the other side of the world. Oh, thank you. It's very exciting. I mean, I really appreciate the fact that you actually found my film on the other side of the world. And um, it is a strange world now where, you know, like the film was a quite a small film and it came and it went and um but every now and then you know you, i get a message from someone like yourself or i have recently been speaking to a producer in germany who just kind of saw it randomly as well and wanted to work with me um on a film so you know we we um you know it the world is both a very big and a very small place these days so true so to 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 build on uh, the youtube interview that i had seen of you i, I thought that it was and as a as, a, as somebody who studies psychology and you know behavioral sciences and so on, I, I love the part where you were dis discussing in the interview uh, the specific qualities that you had looked for in the three main protagonists, and that you, there were certain sort of innate traits or, or aura that would be exuded from these folks that you were looking for. Uh, could you could you discuss this? And I don't know if it would be relevant for you to discuss a bit the the plot line of the movie. I don't know if you want to give away anything. It's up to you. You decide. You're the film director. Okay. Okay, so um, Cat Snake is a film about, about a young man, his name is Sparrow, and um, he's kind of going out of prison and he's trying to go basically straight in every way. He's getting uh, married to a beautiful young woman who comes from a fairly wealthy background. Um, he's um, got a job and he's trying to pull his life together. And then someone comes from the past, um, uh, his former cellmate, Pommy. And um, Pommy uh, is determined to drag Sparrow back into a life of crime and uh, to the point where um, he, will, he will destroy Sparrow's life rather than let him go. And it's a, it's a, it's a predominantly three-hander. It's a psychological uh, thriller in some ways. And, um, it's a story of unresolved sexuality as well. Right. So you, you didn't give away any of the, 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 the meaty stuff. So that's good. Uh, <laughs> now, yeah. so what yeah. were, because as you described the qualities 
that you were looking for in the people who would play those parts, having just seen the movie, I could completely get what you were describing. In other words, it wasn't just the fact that somebody could act the part of being an ominous looking guy. There was something that had to be innately in the disposition of the person. How do you look for that in terms of your, in terms of casting somebody? How, how does that, how does that process work? I often find with casting, um, I, my, my own preference in casting is to find, you know, often I find actors tend to break down into sort of dominant uh, qualities. So it's for, and and it's, a, it's a bit of a Chinese, slightly superstitious kind of thing that, uh, that affects me. But for instance, I'll see an actor and I'll think they're very fiery and they've got a lot of fire. Or they've got, or they've got a lightness. So I think of air, or they've got something a little fluid about them, and I think of water, or or they're kind of very grounded, and I think of earth. So they're they're kind of core qualities that actors have, or that, that they make me feel when I see them audition and work, and um, and then I sort of look, try to match those core qualities with the core qualities of the the. Um, the character on the page, like for instance, in in um, Cut Snake, Pommy, the 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 villain, is very much fire. You know, it was absolutely, um, you know, and uh, literally fire. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and then um, you know, for Paula, who is the, you know the love interest and the girl that he uh, Sparrow is in love with. There was something very light about her, so I was, so, so I was think, sort of thinking air, and and we, we needed I needed an actress who had an innocence about her, and um, and then there was um, Sparrow, who's the main character, who I, I guess <laughs> water is probably something, you know, the the obvious one because he's a very fluid character. Yeah, right, right. Don't give away anything. <laughs> so how did you? How do I mean? How do you decide? what project to work on. And I guess one of the things that we'll talk about is the creative process within your domain. So I understand how the creative process works in the scientific domain, but I'm always fascinated to learn from people who excel in other fields, whether it be as a chef or as a film director, how does your process work? So how do you decide as a first step, and then we'll talk about the actual process of filmmaking. How do you decide this is a movie or this is a story that I'd like to tell? And then how did you apply that to this particular movie? Um, I, I've been involved in the script of this movie for quite a long time, and you know, in some ways, you know, you commit to something, and and then you, you it, you sort of feel like you have to honour that commitment, and so you know, we we just kept going at it and going at it until we got the right cast, and then then uh, raised the money to make it. So it was a, you know, for me, the the I'm taking on a project. I would always, I, I need to be, to. it needs to tick quite a few boxes these days because there's so many things you can do. One, it has to be, um, there has to be, it has to say something that I, I don't feel that has been, I've seen said before. And two, I have to be emotionally affected by it. So I have to be moved by it. And, um, and then three, it has to take me into a world. I feel like, um, is either reinvented through the angle that the story comes in or it's a world I haven't seen before. So they're the three dominant things. And then the fourth one with the producer's hat 
is that it has to be a story which I think can get financed and made and seen. <laughs> right. And, you know, and films are hard because films are hard to get financed and films are hard to get seen as well once they, they are financed. Um, so, uh, so I also work in television a lot. And, um, and in that medium, I would sort of say those same principles apply except for, you know, you bring in the financier, the broadcaster, much earlier. So it's a, it's much more collaborative from an earlier stage. Have you been following, I'm sure you probably have, some of the changes in the industry whereby, you know, for the for a while, television was no longer seen as sort of a prestigious medium. You know, everybody wanted to sort of be on the big screen. Whereas now with the advance of Netflix and, you know, HBO and all this kind of stuff, a lot of the big stars, whether they be directors or actors are now very interested in returning to the smaller screen. Uh, can you comment about this this movement? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I started training uh, as a film director and a film writer. And um, what happened was when I, when I got out of film school, I, I mainly worked in, in TV and I, I kind of worked in at the more prestige end of TV. I worked in mini series and uh, limited run series and, um, and, uh, and then started directing films, and I directed three films. And about, I would say, oh, 10 years ago, I sort of felt a shift in the air, and um, I sort of started seeing, you know, in in the the world this amazing television being made. I mean, it's been going on for longer than 10 years, but uh, I think that what's happened is that um, I think that premium cable really led the way in, in America, like, HBO, obviously, Showtime, um, and then AMC. They, 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 they led the way for um, creatives to be able to tell longer-form stories. Before that, um, TV drama was very much episode of the week, like one episode at a time, and very self-contained, and so stories didn't continue. So if you missed an episode, it didn't matter uh, that you didn't see the next episode. And as a result storytelling itself became quite um, disposable. You know, the, the, whole, the whole principle was that you shouldn't care whether you missed one or, or the other, but that also meant you didn't care about the thing in itself. Um, so with the advent of something like HBO, it became, storytelling became much more serialised. I mean, that's the way that we describe it. Um, it's much more, uh, you know, I guess another way of describing it is novelistic. So, so every episode tended to hang on a cliffhanger, which made you want to go watch the next episode. And, you know, and then the advent of the DVD box set, so you would never miss any of the episodes. So you could actually tell a, a big, long story where, where you were pretty much guaranteed that the audience, or you had a fair chance of thinking that the audience would see the whole thing. And so then you got these incredible novelistic journeys be, uh, be offered to us, like a show like The Wire, for instance, you know, it's a five-volume novel, really, and um, and you know, so so the the experience of television became a very different kind of experience for people, and it was one where where the story was designed to make you care about every single episode, and and also to make you care about all of those this world of characters, um, and so. At the, so what was starting to happen was that um, people, you know, 
were watching these things and having these incredible experiences and um, it became, uh, you know, you started to want to make those things as well. And and the it sort of seems to work in terms of audiences. Audiences really want the, those kind that those kinds of work. Well, I'll, and I, then, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead finish, finish your thought. And then there was this, it's, there's an explosion of content that has happened in America, then all around the world as well, where, you know, first you had AMC and, but, you know, Sundance, and, but then all these other cable companies started making scripted content. And for all of them, it worked because audiences wanted it. So, you know, so, so you know, we're right in the middle of that at the moment. I was going to say and, that... Uh, from the perspective of a viewer, I actually very much enjoy the, I, I guess one would call it the binge watching, uh, yeah, where, yeah. where it becomes very immersive. So I sort of catch a show after all of the seasons have been released. So this is exactly what happened with the Breaking Bad. Uh, many people yeah. uh, said, oh, you, you know, I think this would be right up your alley, Gad. You really need to get into this. You'll enjoy it. And so I got into it. And once I got in, I couldn't get out, right? Uh, same thing yeah. happened. My yeah. wife got into a show called Suits. I don't know if, do you know that show? Uh, Suits. So, so, yes. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think she got into it because she, she finds the... Uh, the main character to be particularly attractive to which I responded. <laughs> you only find him very attractive because he's a very high powered lawyer in the show. Otherwise, if you saw him as a waiter, he wouldn't be quite as attractive. But anyways, uh, so then I started watching this one. I got into it. So I think there's something really unique about if I had to watch these as sort of serial weekly shows, I wouldn't have the attentional, you know, the desire to sit there every week. Wait, But if mm. you tell me I've got, you know, 60 shows so I can really get into that universe and really care about these characters. Yeah. So it's a really long movie. Yeah. Uh, then I'm really going yes. to... So I think maybe that's also the dynamic that's that's working. Yeah. And also now nowadays you can, um, you know, we have bigger TVs. So and we have, people have great sound systems. So the, so the difference between watching something on a tiny little box and watching something on a big screen is not the same. And the other thing that... Um, I, I actually think that a lot of uh, the the rise of television is also about um, uh, the death of community as well, because I think that what happens is that as, you know, in our very hectic, busy, sort of, you know, atomized lives, we have less and less time to connect and do communal things, things together. And um, weirdly enough, watching television is a communal thing because you can see it with your friends or with your partner or your family and you talk through it you know like you, it's an it's an actually much more internet interactive experience in the cinema and not only that you you know you meet a whole bunch of people you met last night and then you're probably going to meet again tomorrow night you know you, you know so so we have these um proxy friends now <laughs> like don draper and betty draper and madman you know like in you know and and you know, and, you know, The Americans is another show that I've been watching, The Left. I mean, there's just so many of them. And um, I think that it's caused a bit of a problem for cinema. And um, what's happening in cinema now is that uh, the kinds of films like Cut Snake, the films that are smaller, um, are, they're, they're harder to get people to go and see, you know, because people are getting such satisfactory experiences on the TV, their TV screens. I was going to say that uh, to build on your point about sort of communal viewing, 
many years ago, before we started having children, when we had a bit more free time, uh, my wife and I started this ritual, which is very much, very much speaks to your communal point, uh, where we went through the list of uh, the AFI, the American Film Institute, top 100 movies of all time. And uh, we said, look, you know, any movie that we see on that list that we've yet to see, why don't we find a way to rent it somewhere? At the time, you know, you still had, you know, you could rent from DVDs and so on. And uh, we'll invite people over and we'll do exactly what you said. And what was very interesting about that process for me, I mean, other than exactly what you said about the communal stuff, is that some movies I would watch uh, and I would say, oh, my goodness, I could completely see how this movie would be an all-time classic. And then other movies that would also be on that list I would watch and I'd say, I don't think I've ever seen something as bad as this stupidity. And let me give you an example of each. Uh, uh, there's a movie, mm. there's a movie uh, you may or may not know this, some of these uh, movies. There's a movie by, with Betty uh, Davis called uh, All About Eve, which I thought was unbelievable. Yes. Do, do you know, right? I yes. mean, you watch this yes. and you're basically transfixed. Like, it's unbelievable, right? Yes. And, that, and actually, yes. that led to my wife becoming sort of like discovering Betty Davis. Uh, and then other movies, uh, a Roman Holiday, uh, mm. I, th I thought it just sucked. And so is it just that I'm a layman who doesn't understand the beauty of all these movies or uh, are we allowed to make these aesthetic judgments even for great movies? I think absolutely. A, a movie is an experience and it's not a, a static fixed thing. And the experience, I mean, that, that's, that's, the, that's probably one of the most interesting things about art in general, that, that art only exists in relationship to someone you know, like a, a painting you know unseen is 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 an object unknown whereas you know a paint a painting seen is, is the is an experience and art is the experience same with films you know like uh which is what is so democratic about them really and that's probably why they they uh, they appeal film and tv appeals to so many people because um every opinion of it is as valid as every other opinion of it because the, the thing only exists in experience. Right. So um, are, are you willing to tell us what are your, off the top of your head, your top five movies of all time? Oh, God, I, I can never do that. Or, or um, give, give me a few. Give again, me a few. I mean, again, what, 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 what's really interesting for me about when I try to name, think of these lists and name these things is that they're all quite old films. Right. And what that speaks to is the fact that... Um, those experiences that I had of watching those films were profound experiences that so that the films are as much about my the time of my life when I saw them or the the you know so for instance uh, you know the films I love are actually the American indie films from the 70s I love oh, 60s and 70s I love The Graduate Mike Nichols film sure. I loved um um a lot of Robert Altman films, A Wedding by Robert Altman. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are other there are other films also that I I've lo loved, but you know, they kind of come and then they go and then <laughs> then I forget them. So when I was growing up in in Lebanon and I didn't speak really English, uh, any English that I knew was through exposure to well, usually to to films uh, or maybe to to you know pop songs or so, something like that. Uh, are you there? You're, yes, yes, yes. Oh, okay. Something. So, uh, okay. Uh, I remember seeing. Uh, so I was I was born in 1964, uh, 
And I remember at that time, Sergio, Sergio Leone was very big because he was coming out with all of his spaghetti Western movies. And as a probably a four, five, six-year-old kid, so in the late 60s, early 70s, I would see, you know, Once Upon a Time in the West with Charles Bronson and uh, Henry Fonda. And it just, it really, it was sort of almost otherworldly. And that's where you sort of realized the power of filmmaking because I could today, exactly what you said about the experience, I could re-see these movies today and almost go back, access being in Beirut, Lebanon, you know, 45 years ago, right? Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, well I, I think then that's also part of the beauty because they still exist today, those films. And that in, in some ways... In the same way as uh, photographs are, are repositories of our memories and our memories are, are the kind of artifacts of ourselves, you know, the, so those, the, those film experiences are also artifacts of, of ourselves, our past. And, and given how ephemeral life is now anyway, you know, there's something very beautiful about being able to say, you know, uh, Ken Russell's Women in Love, for instance, had a profound effect on me when I was a teenager. I saw it when I was a teenager. Um, and so if I saw it now, I mean, I, I would bring the person I am now to it, but, you know, hopefully it would remind me of the person I was then. And, 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 you know, in some ways, you know, the only connection we have with our past is our memories of it. Right. So I, I thought I would switch now to the actual process of being a film director. So if I sort of yeah. try to, uh, you know, analogize to what I do. Uh, if I'm writing a scientific paper, uh, I mean, there is a template to how a story is told in a scientific paper. You sort of propose the research problem, you provide a literature review, you posit some hypotheses. On the other hand, when you're writing a book, uh, which I've, I've written several books, the, the process is very different because it's it's not the same sort of for, formulaic uh, you know, blueprint of how you go about publishing a scientific paper. So you open the laptop one day and there are zero words that are struck on your laptop. And 18 months later, I come out with a 750 page uh, first draft of a manuscript. And that process, you know, borders on the mystical, right? I mean, you go off into a cave. And, and so walk us through, I mean, you know, I, as, as, as I watch movies and I think about all the different decisions that a director has to make beyond just directing the actors, right? I mean, how did you decide to choose, uh, you know, for the love of your man as that scene? So tell us generally how that process works and how your process works. I guess, um, you know, the, the reality in Australia anyway is that by the time you make get to make a film that it takes a long time. And so uh, you've probably lived with it for quite a, quite a long time. I mean, my process is very much about, you know, I, I, I like going to the cinema to experience things and feel things. And, um, and so my process is about use, you know, about firstly honoring the story, the script, the, the manuscript that you start off the blueprint of what the film will be. Uh, and then um, you, trying to uh, bring that to life as effectively as possible. Um, and that pretty much all the decisions that you make, and, you know, because film directing, film directing is really making decisions about, nice. you know, this color over that color, this over that. And actually um, along the way, you have a whole bunch of people that you're working with, like a cinematographer, a designer, 
uh, a costume designer, makeup artists, um, sound recorders, sound designers, composers, like editors, you know, like this whole fleet of incredibly creative people. And so, so your job is really to be like the captain and almost to, you know, steer the ship, you know, that, that, that seems to be the, the closest metaphor that I can find because everyone does their job on the ship and your job is to sort of steer it in one direction and hopefully not hit, hit an iceberg. Um, I, um, so a lot of my process is about communication with the actors, with the, the heads of department, uh, you know, um, and to sort of say, well, this is what we're after. This is what we're trying to do. This is the effect that we're tr trying to create and 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 the effects are created through in in the film medium effects are created through you know the image the power of the image but also the power of the story and image and story are the two key things that you have to work with and you know images create feelings which is what visual art is about and stories create feeling which is what literature is about and um and what you're, try, what you're trying to do is, you know, marry the image with the story to create a feeling and then create a, you know, create a meaning and a feeling. So that, that, that's my job. And do you, I mean, so, so first, the way I guess I would synthesize what you just said is that while different people might be in different parts of the sort of the trees, you're, yes. you sort of have a world, a broader view of the, the full forest, right? Uh, and in that sense, you're the, that, you're the, the idea. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, I would suspect that one of the qualities of a director is his or her capacity to delegate. And I suspect that if you are too much of a perfectionist, that might be a problem. And, and the reason why I'm asking this question is because I think I suffer from maladaptive perfectionism, whereby I always think that, you know, no, no one is going to meet my standards of being punctilious or detail oriented. So when, where it would be a lot more productive and a lot more healthy to recognize that it is okay to delegate task X to certain person. No, I then beat myself because I could do it better. And so then I try to imagine all the decisions that a filmmaker has to, you know, make. And then if you suffer from that, you're going to drive yourself to insanity. No. I mean, the fortunate thing for me is I can't do anything better than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that's actually true of most directors because most directors, when they, by the time they get to the film set, are the least experienced person on that film set. Because, you know, directors don't get to, you know, because films are big, expensive things to raise money for and make and put together. And so um, actually the irony is that, you know, you, you have these young first-time filmmakers then leading people who've had 20, 30 years of experience in, you know, in the business. So, so um, I think that, you know, an obsession with detail, uh, I mean, every, every, I think every director has, you know, different strengths and weaknesses and different, there are different kinds of directors. Um, I think, uh, you know, I'm very story focused, you know, uh, probably because I come from a more literary writerly background. Um, others are more visually focused, you know, um, and, uh, you know, there's the rare breed who do both incredibly well. Um, but, the, you know, um, 
I think you do have to care about the detail because uh, the meaning is in the detail. Right. And, you know, you know, you, you and what's kind of weird is the it's slightly alchemical as well because you can put you know uh, this particular actor this particular director this particular um cinematographer uh together and it'll look like one thing and you change one ingredient and it'll look either completely worse or completely better you know like it, you know it, it's it's so much to do with circumstances and alchemy. So let's let's um, let's drill down that exact point. So if if you're talking about say the same uh, actor mm. who could be directed by various mm. directors, how would that work out? What what are the different styles of directing that might lead to different outcomes? Is it simply whether you grant more independence to the actor versus whether you direct them more? I mean, is that the key dichotomy? Yeah, yeah. Off, off, often, I think that's that's one of the, one of the differences. I think, um, say, for instance, the way I would relate to an actor is I, I just try I just try to be their first audience. I try not I try to keep it fairly simple and direct because I feel like if I've made the right casting choice, then what all I can do really is let them know what the story is and what consequences of their their action to help them understand why they're doing what they're doing or saying what they're saying, and then try to get, you know, a range of different kinds of emotional reactions in in a scene so that I've got, you know, variation to play with in the edit suite. So so that's uh, the way I would direct an actor. Other other directors don't say very much to actors at all. Um, And other directors are much more like, you know, know, prescriptive in the way that they direct actors and different actors like different kinds of directors, you know, it, it's such a, um, I'm being a little bit vague because it, you know, part of my job is also to work out what that actor needs to do the be- their best job, you know, really a director is a, should be an, an enabler, you know, someone who can bring out the best in all the people they work with, because then you'll get the best movie. I was going to I was going to analogize what you said about uh you having to sort of work out what each actor does to my professional yeah. context when I have students whom I supervise let's say doctoral students with whom I'm going to be yeah. having you know a, a four five six year relationship uh, not every student requires the same thing of me I mean there are certain general expectations and certain general dynamics that occur irrespective of who the student is but some students need more constant interactions other others would view that as a you know breach of their independence and they don't want that and so i think one of the skills as a supervisor is to get a sense of what works best with each student and so it ends up being roughly the same as as to what you're doing right Uh, now tell me this absolutely uh, tell me this uh there's a study that came out a few years ago about 10 years ago i think that looked at the so they administered a narcissism Uh, inventory to actors and then they compared their narcissistic scores to sort of a general population and and as would be expected from a naive perspective uh, the actors scored much higher on narcissism are you willing to confirm this through your professional opinion sir (laughs) um you know there are as many different kinds of actors as people i would say 
uh, I, have, I have an expression with some actors that their eyes are very close together, which is I this, I that. Um, <laughs> I, uh, and I probably, I mean, it, it's a very strange profession because it, it infantilizes people. You know, I'm, I, and I'm, I'm always shocked by the number of actors who don't know how to drive. That's because they get driven to places. Um, I think that um, it, it can, you know, and, and I think it, especially if you're acting at a young age, you know, you get positive, you get, you know, your meals. And, and then if you're like a star. You're, you're you getting get very great. You're getting very grainy. Sorry. Is there a way you could uh, okay. not move too much? Uh, yeah. Okay. I can try to lean yeah, forward. Try, I yeah. forward. Yeah. Thank um, you. Yeah, go on. You know, I, I think that I think it's a I think it's a tough um, industry to try to be a good, decent human being because I think a lot of the forces that you're working, the, the circumstances of the industry, because actors are also, um, you know, these days, say in movies and the TV. So, so much of the financing hangs around actors, you know. So, so you know, it is kind of all about them in a way. So, so if you create a world like that, I, I just wouldn't be surprised that there's a high level of narcissism. Well, I, I, I wrote an article several years ago on my Psychology Today column, uh, which was then picked up in the magazine. Uh, the title of the article was The Narcissism and Grandiosity of Celebrities. And I was there remarking about how celebrities find it perfectly reasonable to espouse positions on fields that require great expertise, even though they may not have high school education. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about you pronouncing a political position, that everybody has the ability and right to formulate a position. But when you're talking about physics and epidemiology and evolution and science and, uh, and so on, uh, well, no, we don't care about your opinion. But I, but I think what happens, and I, I try to sort of break down all the reasons that caused them to be uh, so grandiose. You know, if, on, if every day your experience is that people are willing to jump off buildings for the possibility of, you know, touching you, you start developing a God complex, right? I mean, if I am Tom Cruise, uh, I start not being able to decouple reality from fiction. I really saved the world in Mission Impossible, whatever it was. And therefore, why shouldn't you want to hear my opinion on how to resolve radioactive waste? You know, screw the physicist, I'm Tom Cruise. Uh, and and I find that baffling because obviously as a scientist, one of the things that I know is the things that I know and the things that I don't know. And when somebody asks me a question where I don't know the answer, I will equivocate in 17,000 different ways because I'm not willing to definitively pronounce a position if I'm not absolutely sure. Apparently, actors don't suffer from that epistemological doubt, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I think that um, it, and also, you know, it's a two-way street. I mean, why, did, why does the news report this and therefore perpetuate the cycle of um, uh, misinformation? I mean, why, why is it a news story? You know, like often, and it's getting worse now, by the way, because as newspapers uh, get their resources cut back, as real news diminishes and turns into press releases, as everything goes online and, you know, and so, uh, and, and that celebrity stories are clickbait, you know, they, they, 
you know, there's a whole kind of substrata now of news, which is celebrity news. And, um, and so as long as these things are perpetuated within our society, and I do think that it's celebrities are for, you know, you know, for a country like America and, and Australia, countries like Australia, um, you know, we celebrities represent because what it is is that uh, film is an aspirational medium. It's a, it's supposed to create, you know, it, it has an has an ideological function as well, you know, and and uh, and it's, that is re related to capitalism, which is that you know it's the it's the engine of desire in a way, it creates aspiration, and so that's why film, you know, film in in America and Australia tends to be populated with people who are much more beautiful than the ordinary people, and you know they they look better, and that because they live better, and because they you know you have a whole industry industry based around touching people up and making them people that you want to be, and and you know for the people that who live you know difficult lives with economic stress, um, you can sort of say, well, you know you understand why they can aspire to the, the these glamorous lives, the you know. From the Real Housewives to the Kardashians to you know like to you know movie stars like Nicole Kidman and you know these are all like lives that look amazing and so um, so there is a whole industry perpetu that perpetuates that and I think that you know it's an you know I have to deal with it in my business because I have to deal with high-profile actors to try to make my Films, but uh, you know, in other ways, I I feel that there is too much power in the hands of too few people. It's like, um, say, uh, Bernie Sanders one percenters. You know, movie stars are the one percenters. You know, like they they are they represent that, and they themselves as as people can be good, decent, moral, ethical people. But there is a whole system that perpetuates the. Uh, the inequality of um, uh, of our system, and and you know, my own personal belief is that it it is a kind of it's a form of social control as well. Because if you can if you can it, you know, it's like the opiate of masses. <laughs> if you can dream, uh, then you're not awake. You know, if you can dream about movie stars, you're not awake. Well, do 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 you ever? I mean, you must have had stories of. Uh, of course, you don't have to mention any names, but sort of really, truly out of this world diva behavior. You know, uh, if I walk into a room, the color mauve better not hit my eyes or else I'm walking out of this movie set. Do you get this type of stuff or are Australians inherently more humble and modest about their outrageous behavior as, say, compared to the top American stars? Um, I think that Australians tend to be I mean, and I also think that's why they've done so well. That they, they, they tend to be a little bit uh, uh, more rational. Um, Understatement. They're not within. They're, they're not within the the system. The the system that really just per, the personality distorting system, as as much as um, American stars tend to be. Like the American system is is so um, distorting. I think. Um, I've actually been pretty lucky with my experiences with actors. I, most of, I, I have a lot of friends who are actors who I think are really good, decent human beings, and you know, and the few 
kind of you know say A-list movie stars that I've encountered, um, you know again have been good decent people, you know, um, and, and who who work very hard not to you know be, to fall for this kind of narcissistic syndromes. You know, I, I think that interestingly narcissism isn't within the the um, the entertainment industry is almost uh, a system or you know like a syndrome rather than an individual you know it's an it's it's a natural individual response to a systemic kind of disease so what you're saying is that they don't they don't start off being narcissists but uh, by navigating this industry you sort of develop it you develop some of these narcissistic traits that's what you're saying i think yeah i think that narcissism is is secondary uh uh um result of being in this industry in the same way that and you know some people are of course might be drawn to it because of narcissistic tendencies but for others it's like if you stay in the sun too long you get the tan you know what what percentage do you think of actors uh i mean i won't hold you accountable to the specific exact percentage but roughly (laughs) uh, what percentage of actors do you think get into this because they're enamored with the possibility of sort of the outcome, which is wealth and fame, versus those who are truly committed, you know, thespians. In other words, so for example, if I think about Al Pacino, uh, I think that, I mean, yes, he's, he's incredibly famous and wealthy and so on, but I can sort of, at least what I'm led to believe in watching him is that this guy is really committed to his craft. I mean, he's a real actor, right? Whereas when you see the millions of people who sort of move to Los Angeles, uh, to to follow the dream on Sunset Boulevard, uh, you know I don't think that they're all these unbelievably you know thespians, right? I mean uh, you don't become a professor mm. because you you want fame and glory. You you typically become a professor because you really have uh, a real deep love for that process, the scientific process. So how do you see it? Do you see it that most are ultimately just after the the glory with a few true artists, or am I wrong in thinking so? I don't know. I, I really don't know because it's. I mean, I really, you know, admire actors because what they do is is they kind of have to expose themselves, you know, both physically and emotionally, and and that and that rawness takes a certain amount of courage to be able to do. And that they they become the vehicles for telling stories, um, and they become part of the storytelling process. And I. I you know, I, to be honest, most of the actors who I'm friends with, who I know, come from that kind of uh, background. And and if there are other others, then yeah, I know there are other kinds of actors who. But I, um, I, I guess I try to ascribe the the best uh, could, motives. Could it be because to the people I mean? Could it be because the Australian industry? is quite a bit smaller and more intimate. So, and, and actually yeah. I was, I was going to get into that in a bit, which is uh, if I compare the Canadian reality, right? Canada is about 34 million people. Uh, our neighbors yeah. are about 340 million people or roughly. Uh, yeah. Now Quebec, where I live, so the province of Quebec within Canada has its own sort of unique reality, which is it's a, the French part of Canada there are 8 million people in Quebec. So there's a Quebec cinema tradition. And then of course there's a Canadian, you know, artistic tradition. And, and, and 
And of course, they've generated quite a lot of uh, wonderful talent, but there's always sort of this juxtaposition against our big, bad Southern uh, brother. And that results in a dynamic in terms of the history of the film tradition within these two contexts that yes. is quite unique. And I suspect that maybe Australia is somewhat similar to what I just described. Would that be a fair description? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, the Australian industry is a government-subsidized cottage industry. But what we do is we're a, a phenomenal talent incubator and for, for Hollywood, really. Right. You know, we are, you know, like, you just look at the number of Australian actors who've done well in the Hollywood system, it's phenomenal. And, you know, I think we have more movie stars per capita than anywhere in the world. And, um, you know, and I think that um, we're pretty... Um, and that, and that is also because I, th I think that we're a smaller, more collegiate, more uh, industry, and, and maybe that's part part of it as well. I'm not sure. Actually, as I was preparing, uh, you know, to to chat with you, I sort of uh, drafted a list of some of my favorite Australian movies, some of my favorite Australian actors, and some of my favorite Australian music. So I thought I would go through some of these with you. Uh, <laughs> I, some of these might surprise you. You might be you might be amazed that I know some of these. So what? Maybe my, the first recollection I have of an amazing Australian movie, which I would probably put as one of my maybe fifty top all time movies, nineteen ninety one, Flirting. Do you know that movie? Oh, I love Flirting. Yeah. Oh, there you go. There, you, I knew I liked you. Uh, so for those of you who haven't seen uh, that. Yeah, that was a beautiful film. Tandy Newton and Nicole Kidman and John Dygan directed it. Exactly. Yeah. What an amazing Noah, Noah Taylor was in it. Yeah. Exactly. He, and, it was a sequel to a, a film called The Year My Voice Broke. Very oh, I didn't know film. that. Okay, so I'll check that. What, what is the name? What is the title? The Year My Voice Broke. Oh, very nice. Okay, I'll check that out. Uh, the second one, which was a few years later, and, and I sort of, you're talking about how you can relate each of these movies to your personal experiences. In 1991, I was only in my, uh, you know, going from my first to second year doctoral studies. And then in 1994, I finished my PhD. I'm back in Montreal, which is my hometown. And then I, one of the first movies I think I saw when I returned to Montreal was Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And I thought, <laughs> what an unbelievable movie, like so creative, the whole storyline, uh, which of course I'm sure you're, you're familiar with. For those of you who haven't seen it, you must go see it. Which, by the way, leads me to one of my favorite actors, who is Guy Pierce. That's a guy, by the way, yeah. you, you need to get me to chat with him because he seems like a deep guy. He seems like a guy that I would enjoy chatting with, and I, I hope that he would enjoy chatting with me. Uh, have, you, have you met him? And, and am I right in thinking that he's, he looks like a really cool guy? Yeah, yeah. I've met him a couple of times. I've never worked with him. He's, um, yeah, he's a cool guy. He does a TV show here called Jack Irish, where he plays a sort of down-and-out private detective. Hmm. And, of course, he has a huge inter international film career as well. Uh, yeah, no, no. He, yeah, I don't know him well, but he seems like, he seems like a, the real deal. Two other movies and a few other actors and some, uh, just to kind of give the shout-out to Australia. Uh, not an all-time yeah. classic, but I liked it, Lantana. Do you, yeah. know, do you know this yeah. one? Yes. And then the other one, uh, I only yeah. love it very much, not because the movie's so great, but because the story is so heartwarming, especially as a dog lover. Red Dog, which is actually based on a yeah. real story that happened in Australia. Uh, do, do you know the story? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I've seen both of those films. 
Yeah, Lantana is a beautiful film. It's a, it's, it's a classic film in Australia, and it's done phenomenally well. I think Jeff, um, Jeffrey Rush was and in it. Jeffrey Rush was in it. Yes, I know Jeffrey. And um, Jan Chapman produced it, and the writer was uh, Andrew Bavell, who was a very close friend of mine, and the director is um, um, Peter... K- oh, God, no. Uh, Ray Lawrence, who's, oh, a, who's a brilliant Australian director. Um and then Red Dog was also directed by a friend of mine called Chris Stenders and just phenomenal box office. And, like, you know, but very really difficult hit, to watch. Get right? an audience. Very tough Sorry? to watch. Very tough to watch because you yeah, sort of yeah. put yourself in the in the mindset of this poor dog who just goes on this infinite search for his his master or or, or daddy yeah. or whatever you want to call yeah. it. Uh, and also music. I mean, I as I sort of started developing the list, I thought, geez, they're Australian. They're... Now, I will go on record in front of everybody mm. saying that, yes, I do love the Bee Gees. Maybe it's because I was a kid <laughs> of the 70s. Uh, Me some... too. Me too. <laughs> the Bee Gees, you've got Air Supply, Olivia Newton-John, mm. you've got Men at Work, Crowded House, Kylie Minogue, whose buttocks apparently are a national treasure of Australia, so, so you guys definitely have something in the water that you're able to create, as you said, so many incredible people yeah. per capita. Uh, I, I thought I would chat about two more things and then we'll wrap it up because I know you have to go. So one of the things that I do in, in my work, uh, so let's see if we can marry some of my scientific work with some of your interests. So I basically apply evolutionary psychology to study consumer behavior. Uh, so what are the biological underpinnings that make us consume the way that we consume? And I argue that consumption, I mean, it's not just consumption of Coca-Cola and Starbucks, but we consume literary narratives, we consume religious narratives, we consume friendships, we consume relationships. And so in, in two of my books, I talk about cultural products, things like song lyrics and movies and television plot lines, art. And I talk about how cultural products are fossils of the human mind. What I mean by that is that it allows us to look at an ancient Greek tragedy from 3,500 years ago, and we can read it today and completely understand what the, the author was saying precisely because there are these universal themes that speak to our shared biological heritage. And that's what makes what you do so powerful because it's about sibling rivalry and sexual tension and status competition. You know, there are basically five, six, seven themes that make literature what it is and art what it is so what what are your thoughts on that particular analysis i think it's very i think it's very interesting i think it's very true i mean i think there's there's you know the fact that we all live breathe eat you know clothe ourselves relate to each other um that that's that and survive because of those things um that they are the the common commonalities of human experience and what's kind of interesting is how that evolves over time. The relationship, say, between technology and the body and the and society, for instance. I think, you know, our society changes and evolves in relationship to things like technology, things like um, disease. Uh, you know, and and the, I, I think when you talk about the, the, them being fossils, that I think that's a really great way of talking about it because it's almost like. They're, they're archaeological artifacts of of the social conditions of the time, and you know, often often the things that um, make uh, you know us be able to relate to say um, uh, Tolstoy or Dostoevsky is um, that we recognise 
the human impulses behind uh, the the actions, but what we and what makes them compelling or or exotic is the fact that you also see that society has changed since those days. So the things that were strictures then were less strictures now. Whereas, um, you know, you know, uh, but the, our our need for certain things like affection from each other or you know status or you know all of those things are, are still you know they're, they're the kind of they're the foundations of what being human is and that's what allows something like seinfeld right which is syndicated yeah. in you know a million countries uh you know it's, yeah. it's a very specific right it's about four sort of narcissistic self-absorbed new yorkers yeah. and yet somebody in egypt yeah. can watch this and yet really get it, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that speaks to that universality that we are alluding to. Uh, so here, here's, yeah. I, I guess, maybe the, the last question that maybe you could wrap up by telling us about any projects that you're currently working on, if, if, you, if you feel like it. Uh, how do we navigate through the tension between, uh, you know, the, the process of just being an artist, right? You, you're a storyteller. You love the process because you love telling stories. And then the commercial tensions of, say, and again, I'm speaking here as a, consumer psychologist i did a study once with one of my students where we looked at product placements in movies and we did a content analysis of movies both in france and in the u.s uh, france precisely because it's considered the seventh art and so there's sort of this highbrow attitude so to to pollute filmmaking with somebody drinking a coca-cola is basically blasphemy so what's your view on that i mean are do you have the pragmatism that says well, hey, look, life is also about money. And if you tell me that I've got to put the BMW, I'll put it. Or are you sort of a purist? I don't want this, these commercial guys telling me what can or can't go in my movie. I am a little bit um, horses for courses. I think I feel like um, there are some films where it just w wouldn't really matter. Like if you're making a James Bond movie, then it doesn't really matter if you, you see a Maserati or you see, you know, some, you know, super expensive watch. I don't even know what their names are because I pay so little attention to that. Um, but, you know, you, you, you know, there are films that, that are made in a certain way. There are other films where, you know, that kind of product placement wouldn't be welcome, nor would it be sought, because um, that they are smaller things, more intimate things, more personal things, or more uh, provocative things. You know, like and and those those companies don't tend to, you know, go for that. I I sort of say, um, uh, personally, I am a bit of a pragmatist in that uh, if if. If it's a particular kind of product, then I, you know, I, I want the thing to be made. I want it to be seen. So, so um, I would try to tailor it to the market. But, but you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, like I've never made a big studio movie. Uh, um, I, I've never made an, an American network show. I, I, I sort of do the things that I do, and I try to make the best job of them, and I try to get them made. And you know, and I kind of roughly know how to do that at this stage got you any so as we end it uh any projects that people might not be aware of that you'd like to maybe give us a little uh preview of before we pack it in okay i've got a kid show that i created which is actually screening in canada okay. called uh nowhere boys 
and it's just about to go into its third season. And the second season just won an international Emmy. Wow. And um, I've got a new show called Glitch, which is uh, for an Australian TV show, uh, which is all about dead people who come back to life. And I think that's going to screen soon in Canada. I should be able to announce something soon. And I have, um, I'm doing a book adaptation called Barracuda, which um, based on a, an Australian novel, which I hope will screen over, over your way as well. And another book adaptation called Seven Types of Ambiguity. Um, so I do a lot of TV stuff. And then, um, you know, I'm kind of regrouping on the movies and trying to work out, you know, I think movies will go two ways in Australia now. They'll get bigger and be more movie star driven, or they'll get smaller and be more art, art, you know, pure art statements. But um, and I'm not quite sure which way I'm going to lean with yeah. the, with those because part of me likes I like both of those things. Well, I look forward to seeing all your great works, and you're welcome anytime back. For, to continue our conversation. Oh, thank you. Please stay on, okay. please stay on the line. Uh, I'm just going to stop the recording. Thank you so much for coming on, Tony. That was really, really fun. Cheers.